You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Strength, true strength, is demonstrated in sacrifice. And so to all of you who have someone in your family who has made the ultimate sacrifice for our country, we love you, we're praying for you, we're grateful. We're grateful. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Proverbs this morning? Proverbs chapter 7 is the passage we'll look at. And when you came in this morning, you should have found Bibles, stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. So grab one of those on your way out today. Grab a couple. If you have a couple of people in your family, we'd love to give you a Bible. And if you don't know your way around the Bible very well, we've put all the verses that we're going to study together on the screen so you can track along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Proverbs chapter 7 is our passage this morning. And we're going to have a look at that. I hope. Having some technical difficulties. Here we go. Back it up a little bit. Proverbs chapter 7 is going to introduce one of the seven main themes we're going to study together. So listen carefully to God's word. With much seductive speech, the forbidden woman persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today we're wrapping up this series on the book of Proverbs that we have been in for the past six weeks or so. And in this study, Solomon, a man known for his unparalleled wisdom, has been passing along this God-given wisdom to us. And what we've done is we've taken the 900-plus verses of Proverbs and we've organized them thematically. And we've come up with this list of some of the defining marks of the wise person. And we've learned that wisdom is much more than brains. Wisdom is about building, building the type of life that is beautiful to God and beneficial to others. And we've looked at several of these wise marks the, the marks of the wise person, beginning with the wise person fears the Lord. This is the very beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. It's an affectionate reverence. It's a bowing of the entire life before God himself. Secondly, we looked at the wise person and how he or she welcomes good counsel. To be wise is to be perpetually open to instruction, humble, teachable, but also selective in our influences, learning from other wise people while fleeing foolish people. Thirdly, we've learned that the wise person has healthy relationships. Relationships are the stuff of life. We all have them. We all need them. The wise person gives great care to his or her relationships with family, with friends, with neighbors. Fourth, we saw that the wise person uses words carefully. Our words are far more powerful than we realize. A lack of self-control when it comes to our words can cause great destruction to our relationships in the same way that a small flame can set ablaze an entire forest. 
Fifth, we learned that the wise person works diligently. We talked about this last week. God is pleased with us when we perform our work well, whatever our field of study, whatever our work is, because God has called us to that work. And in fact, it's one of the ways that He loves and cares for His creation is through our work. And so He's pleased when we work diligently. Today, in the final week of the series, we're going to talk about how the wise person forsakes deadly follies. Since at least the 4th century, there has been a list that has circulated in Christianity. Perhaps you've heard of it. Sometimes it's referred to as the seven deadly sins. You might know this from the the movie from the mid-90s, Seven. I prefer to think of this as the seven deadly follies. The word folly really brings to the forefront of our thinking the fact that when we choose to walk this path, it is the path of folly. It is drawing us away from the path of wisdom. So these follies, whatever they are, they are not the bricks we use to build the type of life that is pleasing to God. They're deadly follies. Now the word deadly could be a little bit misleading because in a way all sin leads to death, physical And spiritual death, if it's not covered by the blood of Christ, the wages of sin is death, Paul teaches us in Romans. So why then did the early Christians group these seven in particular together and refer to them as the deadly sins, the deadly follies? Really, the older designation is better. They were first called the capital sins, the capital follies. Our English word capital comes from a Latin word which means source like the head of a river. Well, here's an even better image that was popular in the Middle Ages. Think of a tree. Picture in your mind a tree with a strong trunk. From it extends six strong branches. According to early Christianity, these seven deadly follies are like that tree. The first deadly folly is the trunk, pride. And all of our sin grows from that trunk, pride. The other six deadly follies are the six strong branches that extend from pride. And at the end of each of those branches, there are more smaller branches, each of which bears toxic fruit. But you see, here's why this image is important. If you just prune the edges of the smaller branches, you never really get to the underlying issue. If you want to walk the wise path, if you want to live the type of life that is beautiful to God and beneficial to others, then what you must do, you must cut off the six branches and take an axe to the trunk. And so that's what we'll talk about today. What are these seven deadly follies? We'll spend just a few minutes on each of them. Proverbs warns us about all seven. And as we think about them, ask yourself, do I see evidence of this in my life? Do I see evidence of this in my heart? And the ones we find, we must then figure out what to do about it. But first, what are these deadly follies? Well, I've told you the first one. It's pride. And for each of these, I'm going to try to give you a a pithy expression that maybe will help you understand these sins in a fresh light. What is pride? Pride is the self-centered, anti-God state of mind. It's the anti-God state of mind. Proverbs 16, 18 warns us, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The prideful person is self-centered. The prideful person always wants to be heard, 
leads with assertions, never asks questions, doesn't need to ask questions, already has all the answers. The prideful person says, look at me, follow me, focus on me, your Savior is here. And because pride is self-centered, it is also anti-God. Now, this is what we learned weeks ago from C.S. Lewis. This is a bit of a review. We talked about pride in the week where we talked about the importance of being teachable, being humble. Repetition is the mother of all learning. So I want to repeat the quote from C.S. Lewis that I shared with you several weeks ago. Listen again to what Lewis says about pride. He says, There is one vice of which no person in the world is free. No person which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, the trunk of the tree. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that, they are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, It is the complete anti-God state of mind. There it is. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down. Looking down on things, looking down on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You See, if you're prideful, you will always look down on other people. Down on other things. And you will never be able to look up and see God for who He is, the true center of the universe. This is why pride is so dangerous. It's not just being curved in on the self. It's not just being self-centered. It's actually being anti-God. Pride, the trunk of the tree from which these other six strong branches extend, including the second deadly folly, envy. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. Feeling bitter when others have it better. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It makes the bones rot. We envy other people's clothes, their cars, their opportunities, their talents. We envy their families, their vacations, their homes. And if we look at ourselves and we ask, what do I envy in others? It actually will uncover, it will reveal some of the idols of our own hearts. Some of you, perhaps you're single, and you find yourself envying that couple that seems to have the perfect marriage. Others of you, you're married, but you don't have children. You find yourself envying that family that just had the beautiful baby. You see, often our idols, the idols of our hearts... They're good things. They're good things, like marriage, like family, but we convert them into a God. We chase after them. We cherish them. We praise them. We pursue them. Our idols, they're not usually golden statues. Sometimes they're flesh and blood people. If you ask yourself, what is it that I envy in others, it will point you, it will direct you to the idols of your own heart. I think envy is more prevalent today than ever before in the history of the world because we know more about other people's lives than ever before. Think back to that wisdom pyramid from several weeks ago, Brett McCracken's wisdom pyramid, the six sources of wisdom, beginning with the Bible, Scripture is the foundation, the church, nature, books, beauty, and at the top, the use sparingly peak, internet and social media. 
McCracken argues that the problem in many households is that we've inverted the pyramid. And so the source, the foundation source, is actually the internet and social media. And the used sparingly portion is the Bible at the top. Understand that social media is the natural habitat for envy. It's the natural habitat. If the first thing we do in the morning and the last thing we do at night, and what we do about every seven minutes in between, is just scroll through social media, we are cultivating envy in our hearts. Now listen, those of you who are huge social media people, you still know this to be true, don't you? You don't need me to persuade you. You don't need me to convince you. You feel it in your heart. You know it's true. This doesn't mean that we reject technology outright, but we redeem it. We use it sparingly. We use it appropriately. Envy. Feeling bitter when we think someone has it better. It's the second deadly folly. Here's the third one. Gluttony. Feeding the stomach while starving the soul. Proverbs 23, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Now my guess is that many of you who have been in church your whole life have never heard a sermon on gluttony, which is interesting because the Bible cares what we put in our bodies. Believer, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is your primary tool for serving the Lord. We are called to glorify God in our bodies. Therefore, it matters what we put in our bodies. Now, what do I mean when I say that gluttony is feeding the stomach while starving the soul? Well, just like idolatry that we talked about a moment ago, gluttony starts with good things. It starts with food, wine, things that God has created, good things. But we turn to these good things we turn to these creature comforts, seeking to satisfy our deepest desires. And that's something that only God can do. You see, we have this feeling of emptiness, don't we? And so what do we do? We go for the quick fix of chocolate, soothing of alcohol, and a nice meal out, bag of chips close by, whatever it might be. We turn to our creature comforts, seeking to satisfy our deepest desires but they will never satisfy. As the early Christian writer Augustine said, our hearts will always be restless until they rest in God. Feed your face all you want. It won't satisfy your soul. It won't satisfy your soul. Only God can do that. Gluttony. Here's the fourth one. Greed. Being possessed by our possessions. Being possessed by our possessions, driven by the desire to acquire more and more for ourselves. Proverbs eleven twenty four: One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds, withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Like gluttony, greed begins with something good, money. Proverbs is not opposed to money. In fact, Proverbs teaches us that diligence typically leads to financial blessings from the Lord. Money is a good thing. It's our attitude toward money. Do we love money? Do we worship money? Are we greedy? Are we possessed by our possessions? Proverbs teaches us, like the rest of the Bible, there's only one way to know that you're not possessed by your possessions. There's only one way. You must let your money go. It's the only way. And look at what the proverb teaches us. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Now, what does that mean? 
It means that when we are generous rather than greedy, our hearts will be satisfied with a deep and abiding joy. We will be richer in ways that money can never, will achieve something that money can never provide. There's a greater wealth, a greater joy, and we will know it only through our generosity, not through our greed. One of the best examples of the end result of greed comes from the very first, far the best one in this series, the very first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Anybody seen that one? Maybe it's been a while? Listen to this quote. You'll know it. I'm not going to read it in a piratey voice. You can just picture, you can just picture Captain Barbosa, okay? But listen to this because it captures with a haunting precision the end result of greed. Here's what Barbosa says as he tells the story of them finding the Aztec gold. He says, find it we did. Find it we did. There be the chest. Inside be the gold. And we took them all. We spent them and we traded them. We frittered them away on drink and food and pleasurable company. And the more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. The food turned to ash in our mouths. And all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We are cursed men. Compelled by greed we were. But now we are consumed by it. That is the end result of greed. Being possessed by our possessions. The next deadly folly is lust. Turning people into possessions. Proverbs 5, 3 and 4, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. This recurring character that we've seen in Proverbs, the forbidden woman, this is a metaphor for sexual sin, including lust. Solomon is teaching us about the dangers of lust. Lust dehumanizes. You must see this. It's the only way you'll ever come to realize why it's so serious. Lust dehumanizes. It takes a person created in the image of God, a person of dignity and value and worth, loved by his or her creator, and it treats that person like a possession, an object, something to be owned, to be consumed, to be used solely for my pleasure. Lust dehumanizes. It takes a person and treats them as a possession. The next deadly folly is sloth. Being lazy at love. Being lazy at love. Proverbs 19.15 Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. We talked about this at length last week. Another recurring character in Proverbs is the sluggard, the slothful person, the lazy person. The lazy person is often pictured as someone who never begins things. Sometimes he'll begin a task but doesn't complete it. Perpetually he's a man of excuses. She's a person of excuses. Never wants to face the tough things in life. But ultimately what we learned last week is that laziness is a spiritual issue. It's not some minor character flaw. It's a spiritual issue because God has called all of us to certain works in the world. And so when we disregard that, 
If wisdom is building a life for God, laziness is just saying, I'm going to waste what God has given me. The gifts he's given me, the talents, the opportunities, I'm wasting it all. The, the, the sluggard builds nothing, contributes nothing to human flourishing, does no good for society. So in other words, he or she is lazy at love. God has given you those gifts as a way for you to love and care for his world. And so when you waste those gifts, you're lazy at love. That's why sloth is so deadly, so dangerous. One more. The seventh and final deadly folly is wrath. And wrath, at its core, is refusing to let God run the universe. Now think about this for a minute. Proverbs says, A man of wrath stirs up strife. And one given to anger causes much transgression. Why is it that we get angry? Why is it that we are wrathful towards someone? It is because we think we know better than God. It is because we want to be in control. We want to direct the traffic of the universe. We want to decide what happens to people, especially to those people that harm us. You see, wrath is a battle over jurisdiction. God teaches us in his word, vengeance is mine, he says. And we insist, no, I'm not waiting for you, God. That's my territory. I want vengeance now. Some of the most famous lines in movie history must be, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die, Princess Bride. It's a story of wrath. It's a story of revenge. And it's just one of countless examples we could point to. Wrath is always our way of saying, I refuse to let God be God. I refuse to let God run the universe. So here they are. The seven deadly follies, the seven deadly sins. Pride, the tree trunk from which these other six extend. Envy, gluttony, greed... Lust, sloth, and wrath. We're aware of them now. What comes next? Next, we should acknowledge the ones that are present in our lives. See, Proverbs teaches us that sin, all sin, is always deadly, always dangerous. But Proverbs also teaches us that confession of sin is safe. In fact, there is nowhere safer for a sinner than open and honest in the presence of God. Look at the last thing that Proverbs is going to teach us in this series. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There is safety in honesty before God. Do you hear me? There is safety in honesty before God. Fully exposed, nothing to hide, no excuses, just openly confessing our sins. Unless you think that your sins are too many, lest you think that your sins are too vile, remember Solomon's father, David. And remember his story. 
David was a man who envied. He envied another man's wife. He lusted after her. Prideful and powerful, he used his position as king to remove the man who was in the way of what he wanted. But eventually, David turned back to the wise path. He confessed his sin. You can read his confession. It's in another one of the wisdom books of the Bible, the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. One of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture where David confesses openly his failures. See, one of the helpful things about studying the deadly follies is that it allows us to name our sins. Hang with me on this. It allows us to name our sins. It's one thing to say, God, forgive me for my sin. It's pretty vague, right? And when confession is vague, repentance is left vague. It's one thing to say, God, forgive me of my sin. It's a whole other thing to say, God, forgive me for my greed. I'm greedy. You see, when you name your sin like that, then all of a sudden, repentance is crystal clear. I know what I must do. i got to let go of my money. That's what repentance looks like. Naming our sins, that's the counterpart to counting our blessings. We want to be specific when we give thanks to God, right? We should be specific when we confess our sins. And when we do, because of the blood of Jesus, we will always find forgiveness. There is safety, friend, in honesty before God. We confess and then we forsake. And what does that mean? It means we turn away. We turn away from these deadly follies. We kill them, death to the deadly follies, so that something far better can grow in their place. See, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, believers, by the power of the Spirit within us, when we confess our sins and we forsake them, we put them to death, far better things grow. Better for us, better for our children, the spouse, everybody in your life, your relationships will be better, the workplace will be better, everything will be better. What will grow? Look at this, I'll show you. When by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we put these deadly follies to death, these things will grow. Put pride to death so that humility grows in its place. Not a self-centered, anti-God state of mind, but an others-oriented way of living. When we put envy to death, contentment will grow. You'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied with who you are, what you have, and you'll never be able to celebrate the blessings of others unless you put envy to death by the power of the Spirit. When we put gluttony to death, moderation will grow. The ability to appreciate God's good gifts and to use them wisely but not abuse them. When we put greed to death, generosity will grow. Open eyes and open hands to see the needs of the world and meet them. When we put lust to death, fidelity will grow. Mental, digital, physical faithfulness to your spouse a burning desire for your spouse alone. When we put sloth to death, diligence will grow. 
working with excellence, working for God. And then finally, when we put wrath to death, forgiveness will grow. Believers, don't you see that you yourself have been forgiven? Because of Jesus, his sacrifice in your place for your sins, you have been forgiven. God has forgiven the inexcusable in you and the inexcusable in me. And therefore, we must forgive the inexcusable in others. Only then, only then, will we showcase the gospel. Only then will we show the world the transformative power of God's grace. Forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this book of Proverbs and all that we have learned from it. And here's my prayer today. I'll keep it very simple. God, I pray that you are convicting us of our sins at this very moment. Convict our hearts, Holy Spirit. And then take us through that conviction to the good news of the gospel. Because of Jesus Christ, when we confess our sins to you, God, we are forgiven. We are not defined by our failures. We are not remembered for our failures. They are forgotten. They are washed away. No sin, no guilt. Christ gives us new life. So convict us and comfort us. Oh, Lord, comfort us. And help us to live for you each and every day. Showcasing the good news of the gospel to the world. In Jesus' name.